0: Well, good morning. Everybody doing all right out there? All right, good. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, My name is Pastor Neil. For those of you that uh, maybe I've never met before for the first time, I know there are a few visitors here today. And uh, I'm just very glad to have you here today. We are going through the book of 1 Peter. So I'll ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 right now. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in the middle of the chapter or so. But before we get to our scripture text today, I I saw a road sign the other day that I thought was interesting and I I wanted to share it with you. I've never seen a road sign quite like this one. Take a look at this road sign up here. Can everybody see that? It says, Absolutely nothing, next 22 miles. Has anybody ever uh, seen a road sign like that before? Okay, that's that's pretty good. Alright, some of you. Um, Can you imagine if for the next 22 years of your life, you felt as if there was absolutely nothing to look forward to. Can you imagine if for the next 22 years of your life, you just thought, well, what is the point? Why do I continue to live this life? What, what is the end result, Lord? What is this accomplishing? What is my life? As simple as it might be, What is the end result of what I am doing on earth today? You know, for those of you who are Christians and who are trying to follow the Lord with your life, those of you who are trying to be faithful and trying to live out your Christian life as Christ would have you live it, for those of you who are living that kind of lifestyle, oftentimes I think it's safe to say there's going to be times of discouragement. Oftentimes, those of you who live the way Christ would have you live are going to be faced with difficult circumstances. You're going to be faced with hardships, with persecution. You're going to be ridiculed and mocked for your faith. And sometimes you look at the road ahead of you and you think, what is awaiting me, Lord? Why do I continue to live this way? What is the end result Of a life of faith. The title of my message today is Vindication Ahead. Take a look at the revised sign now. Imagine if you saw, oh, you're going to have to restart that there back and forth. There we go. Imagine if you saw a sign that said Vindication Ahead. Now that would perk your interest, wouldn't it? You're driving on the road and, and up ahead there was vindication. There was something that lie ahead that would vindicate you. That would help you to recognize what it is you had been trying to accomplish all along in your life. Friends, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter is going to tell you and I today that there is vindication on the road ahead. That 22 years from now, while we might question it at times, Lord, where where is my life going? As I'm faithful to you, Father, what will be the end result? Peter wants to tell you and I today, vindication is ahead. Soon you will be vindicated for your life of faith. And while you may not see it in in the here and now, 22 years later in a sense, when all is said and done, you will receive the vindication of God Almighty. Let's read today about what Peter has to say about vindication ahead. Chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Now, we've got a little bit of a longer text today. It's going to be a little top-heavy, too. And I mean to say that the, the first portion of our text is going to be difficult to understand. But as we grapple with it and pull through it, we will begin to see where Peter is taking us. So take a look. I want to read it one time all the way through, and then we will go through it verse by verse. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 17. He's spinning off this final verse that we saw last week in 17. Peter says this, For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit." "...by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype, which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God." Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has ceased, excuse me, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these things, they think it strange that you do not run with them. In the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask in a special anointing of your Spirit upon this time right now. Oh Lord, we're dealing with a portion of Scripture that is, has been extremely confusing down through the centuries. Yet, Lord, there is an amazing kernel of truth that we are about to look into. Father, in this text, you are reminding us through the Apostle Peter that there is vindication ahead. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to rightly interpret Your Word, pull from it Your truth, and remind it, have it be a reminder, Father, to our very lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 17, Peter says this, For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now this is... For Peter, an overarching theme statement throughout the latter half of his book. Peter, toward the latter half, particularly chapters 3, 4, and 5 of 1 Peter, the letter that he wrote to the Gentile Christians of Asia Minor, this is a statement, 317, that is really a thematic statement for much of the epistle. He's saying, be prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake. Be prepared, if it is the will of God, that you patiently endure unjust suffering. And back in chapter 2, He lifted up the person of Jesus Christ who was the supreme example of suffering. Chapter 2, verses 21-25, to you see Jesus being lifted up as, as the chief example of why we should suffer for righteousness' sake. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, He suffered once for sins. That is to say, it is final. It is complete. What Jesus Christ did on the cross at Calvary, finally accomplished payment for sin. Jesus paid the penalty once and for all. He was the just man who suffered and died on behalf of the unjust. Why? Verse 18 says that He might bring us to God. In a word, reconciliation. Jesus suffered and died that we might be reconciled to God. Peter says He was put to death in the flesh. That is to say, in His earthly existence, He suffered and He died. But that was not the end of the story. For after that earthly time of suffering and death, He was raised up, made alive again, by the Spirit of God, thus conquering forever, finally, once and for all, Sin and death. Let's not miss what Peter is saying here at the onset of this study today, for it is largely the crux of the entire section. Peter means to say that though Christ suffered and died in his earthly life, though he suffered and died, that was not his final resting place. Instead, Jesus was vindicated. Vindicated by God Almighty. He was, writ, he was raised up, made alive by the Spirit. And as we will soon see in verse 22, He is now seated at God's right hand and all of creation will be made subject to Him. Peter's point is to say that the Father of all creation has vindicated His Son. And He will vindicate all people who put their hope and their trust in Him. But before Peter gets to verse 22 in the hope of vindication, he's going to digress quite a bit, isn't he? In fact, I'm sure some of you were reading verses 19 to 21 and you were scratching your heads and you were saying, what in the world is going on in these verses? And rightly so. Because as I said Uh, In my prayer, these verses over the centuries have been interpreted in such a variety of ways that it is remarkable. Uh, We approach this passage of Scripture very carefully, knowing full well that through it, much much false teaching has been uh, proclaimed throughout the church, both the Catholic and the Protestant church. And so I want us to very humbly And gingerly, if you will, approach verses 19 to 21, but I do believe firmly that there is a way of interpreting this passage which best fits its context. So take a look yet again. At the end of verse 18, it says, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, now verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. You say, come again? Yeah, that's what I said too first time I read this. Now, I... I it, it, you know, you look at this and you're saying, Lord, wh- where are you going with this? Peter, where, where are you taking us? This is a, I mean, this is not just a rabbit trail. This is like a, this is like, you know, a semi-rabbit trail. It's, it's, it's a very large rabbit trail, it seems. Well, believe it or not, Peter is saying this for very good reason. We must first attempt to identify what Peter is saying before we can identify why he is saying it. So let's take a look at it in small bites. Notice the phrase, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now let's get rid of the pronouns, shall we? Who is in reference when Peter says, by whom, based on the end of verse 18? The Spirit, exactly. Who is in reference when he says, by whom also he went and preached? Who is the he? Jesus Christ. So effectively, we could say this in substituting the pronouns. This, by the Spirit of Christ also, by, excuse me, by the Spirit, also Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. Okay? Now this is just a way for you and I to very clearly uh, substitute the pronouns for the, the persons involved here. It is by the Spirit that Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. So we've we've gotten rid of our pronoun problem. Now the million dollar question. What does it mean that Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison? Take a look at that question. What does it mean that Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison? There are many interpretive options down through the centuries. I'm going to share with you three of them. The first is this. This is historically how the church, both Catholic and Protestant, have attempted to interpret these verses. The first option is this. Jesus preached to the unbelieving generation of Noah's time, offering them a second chance at salvation. In Catholic terms, this is called purgatory. You may have heard of it. Secondly, another interpretive option. I'm just going through options here. Secondly, Jesus preached to fallen angels or demonic spirits declaring His victory over sin and over death. Third, Jesus preached through Noah to the unbelieving generation of Noah's day. Now that first view up on the board there Uh, Again, is the Catholic understanding of purgatory. The second uh, view has also been uh, known throughout the centuries, most popularly in recent days. I think that more and more uh, theologians um, are beginning to lean toward this option. Um, My personal perspective is, however, it is option number three. St. Augustine, 1st, recommended option number three in some of his writings back in the 4th century. And though he did not defend his, his claim as to how Christ preached through Noah, later on theologians and subsequent scholars did defend it, and I think they defended it rightly so, because I believe that this is precisely what Peter has in mind when he says that by the Spirit Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. So, let me say this very clearly. It could be option two. And some pastors today in churches in this area would probably tell you it's option two. I'm telling you I don't think it is. I think it's option three. And I'm going to give you good reason why I believe Christ was preaching through Noah to the unbelieving generation of Noah. So let's take a look at that number three. And let's give good reason for why it is number three. First, take a look at this. Remember back in 1 Peter 1, 10-11, it said the Spirit of Christ was at work in the Old Testament prophets. Take a look at this verse. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Peter says, Of this salvation, he's speaking of our eternal salvation in Christ, the prophets, that is the Old Testament prophets, have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come, that would come to you. They were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Friends, first Peter 1, 10 and 11 and verse 12, which we didn't see here, but that passage at the onset of this letter to the Christians in Asia Minor was a compelling statement. Peter, in essence was telling you and I that the Old Testament prophets, prophesied by the very Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is to say, the Spirit of Christ was in them, speaking through them about the Messiah's sufferings and the glories that would follow. The Spirit of Christ was in them, speaking through them about the Gospel of God. Compelling statement. How about this, a second reason why it is Jesus preaching through Noah. B. Noah is later described by Peter in 2 Peter as a preacher of righteousness. 2 Peter 2.5 says, And God did not spare the ancient world, but He saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. The Greek word for preacher there in 2 Peter 2.5 is the Greek word kerux. The verb of that Greek word in which it was said that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that verb to preach, which is keruso, is the same verb in first Peter three nineteen. So Peter in essence is saying that Jesus preached through Noah in first Peter three nineteen, and that Noah was in fact a preacher of righteousness in Second Peter chapter two. Verse 5, commonalities, things that should compel us to consider whether this is the interpretation of the text. But now there's another question yet to be answered. If, in fact, Christ preached through Noah to the unbelieving generation of Noah, why does Peter refer to those people as spirits in prison? Now let's center in on that question. Why does Peter refer to these people of Noah's generation as spirits in prison? It's a great question. And it also demands an answer. First, I want to say this. The term spirits means human persons in 1 Peter 3.19. And I'm going to suggest why. If you'll notice throughout the book of 1 Peter, if you were to do a study on the word soul, you would find that soul was in reference to a human being every single time. In other words, when Peter uses the word soul, he is referring to human persons, that their souls have been purified, he says. That their souls have been saved. He's referring to human persons. Here, he uses a slightly different term, though often used synonymously by the Apostle Paul, the term pneuma or spirit, including, take note, the very next verse in chapter 3, verse 20 where he says that the divine excuse me, he he uses the word souls there in three twenty, where he says that is eight souls were saved through water. So we see here Peter's MO is often oftentimes to refer to human persons as souls, and I'm also suggesting as spirits. You find this in Hebrews chapter ten. But yet here's yet another reason why we should understand the term spirits to mean human persons in prison. And it is this. Every time the term disobedient is used in chapter 3, verse 20 that you see in your Bibles where it says they were formerly disobedient, that term is used four times to describe people in 1 Peter. Peter is not suggesting that demonic demonic spirits or fallen angels were being disobedient, though in fact they were back in the days of Noah. Instead, By and large, he uses that term disobedient to refer to human persons, their disobedience before God. A final reason that I've included up here is the description in prison refers to divine judgment, divine judgment that they would receive upon rejecting Jesus' preaching through Noah. Now, it's important to recognize that the people to whom Christ preached through Noah were physically living on the earth, even though Peter refers to their ultimate fate as being imprisoned. Uh, one commentator gave this kind of an example. He said, he said this statement. He said, it's as if we were to say, I knew President Bush when he was governor of Texas. Okay, Think about that statement for a minute. I knew President Bush when he was governor of Texas. What that statement means is, I knew a man who is now the President of the United States, who back then was the governor of Texas. I knew President Bush when he was governor of Texas. So also, this statement, Jesus Christ preached through Noah to the spirits in prison, is as if to say, Jesus preached to those living on earth who are now in prison, the message of the gospel of God. Peter is referring to their eternal fate. Though at the time of the preaching, they were well and alive on earth, though being disobedient. Jesus Christ, preaching through Noah, the Spirit of Christ preaching through them, 1 Peter 1.10, making known the truth of God. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5. Spirits and souls being often referred to human persons and not so much to demonic spirits or fallen angels. Friends, this I would submit to you is the interpretation of 1 Peter 3.19 and 20. In an effort to clarify the understanding of the passage, the New American Standard says that he made proclamation to the spirits now, in prison. They are now in prison, but they yet once were living on the earth while being preached to. Let's go back to our text. The end of verse 20, Peter says this. He says all this was being accomplished when once the divine long suffering, that is to say God's patience, when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now there's a brief reference here to Noah's Ark, by which his wife, three sons, and three daughter-in-laws were all saved. But while you and I might think it would be more normal for Peter to suggest that they were saved by the Ark, Peter instead indicates that Noah and his family were saved through the water. We'll see why he does this as we look at verse 21. Take a look at 21. Peter says this, There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Peter says, Just as Noah and his family were saved through water, So also, corresponding to that, we today, Peter's audience and you and I, have a new kind of salvation, a salvation that is found through water baptism. Just when you thought your questions were going to stop, huh? What does this mean? Saved by baptism? What could Peter possibly be suggesting here? Yes, Peter is saying we are saved through baptism. The question is, what does he mean by the term saved? Could this mean our eternal destiny is contingent on being baptized physically with water? I'll save you the suspense. No, that is not what he is suggesting. Peter is not suggesting that by physical baptism, we are eternally brought into God's presence in the life hereafter. He is not suggesting that the salvation in view via baptism is of our justification in Jesus Christ. There are a few reasons why this is so. First, look again at verse 20 in the story of Noah. Pay close attention to what he just said about Noah. Peter writes that Noah and his family were saved through water, that is through the flood waters, which kept the ark afloat. Now if we were to make the contention, as some churches do, that Peter is suggesting that water baptism saves us, then likewise, equally so, we would be compelled to make the contention that Noah correspondingly was eternally saved via the waters of the flood. Let me say that again. If we were to suggest, which we are not, but if we were to suggest that water baptism is what eternally saves us, then we would also be absolutely forced to interpret the start of verse 20 as Noah and his family also being eternally saved via the flood. Friends, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that Peter is not suggesting that Noah and his family were eternally saved because they happened to be in a boat that floated on the water. No. Instead, it's relatively easy to understand that what Peter is telling you and I today is that Noah and his family were physically preserved through the floodwaters. They were physically saved, delivered. Moreover, we might add that he and his family were vindicated. Imagine the mockery, ridicule, and scorn they would have incurred during the 120 years that they were building this ark on the earth. 120 years in which the community around them, by and large, that is all of them, were engaged in wicked acts, idolatry. They had rebelled utterly against God. And yet Noah is building his ark, trusting in the God of Israel to save them from the flood. It is in this sense that God saved Noah. He physically delivered them. He brought them safely through the flood. He vindicated their cause. He preserved them. Now in turning to verse 21 we see that peter says that corresponding to noah corresponding to that story corresponding to that moment of salvation if you will corresponding to the flood waters which saved noah you and i today equally so have an opportunity to be saved that is delivered Preserved, vindicated by means of water baptism. And we need to pause and recognize what that means. Peter's not saying that we are saved eternally via baptism. Instead, he is suggesting time and time again, if you look at chapter 1 verse 5, he says your salvation is ready to be revealed. It's ready and waiting for the last time. Throughout chapters 1 and 2 in particular, when Peter uses the term salvation, he's not referring to justification. He's not referring to walking through the pearly gates of heaven. He, time and time again, using the word salvation, is referring to one thing and one thing only. Your glorification before the Lord Jesus Christ. Your vindication. Both in this life and in the one to come, the glory, the honor, The responsibility that God will give unto you for a life well lived. That is why he refers to salvation as a hope in chapter 1, verse 3. That is why he refers to salvation as an inheritance waiting for you in chapter 1, verse 4. That is why he is saying that your salvation is not yet here in chapter 1, verse 5. He says it's ready to be revealed. Friends, when Peter uses the term saved... He's not referring to justification. He's referring to our eternal glorification on that final day when Jesus Christ looks upon our lives and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Glorification. You've heard that term. Every Christian, let me say clearly, will be glorified in the life to come. They will receive moral perfection, fullness of knowledge, new spiritual bodies. These are things that the scriptures teach about our coming glorification. Yet there remains an aspect, an aspect of glorification that is yet to be determined. That aspect concerns a Christian's role in the coming kingdom of God. Those who faithfully serve Christ in this life, Will be honored with positions of responsibility in the kingdom to come. Thus, in a sense, we are being saved, being saved, based on how we live out our earthly life before the Lord. If we live for Christ, Peter says we'll be saved to the uttermost, receive a high calling in the glorification to come. If we fail to follow the Lord, the scriptures attest to the fact that our role in the kingdom will be found lacking. And while we will enter the gates of heaven, if you will, we may not have come into an inheritance that was as glorious as it could have been. We may, may not be given roles and responsibilities and privileges and honor and glory that God desires for us that we instead laid aside for the lust of this world. Friends, when Peter says that the Christians in Asia Minor of the first century are saved by baptism, what he means to say is that believers incur a greater kind of glorification. They incur a greater kind of favor before God Almighty when they follow the Lord in baptism. I believe this was especially true for Peter's audience Those of you who know your history, who have been a part of these studies in 1 Peter, you've heard me say time and time again that to convert to Christ in this day and age, in that geographical location of the world, was an absolute cultural faux pas. It was a no-no. It was a big, big mistake in the eyes of the surrounding culture. To convert to Christ... To affiliate yourself with Jesus Christ and to lay aside the pagan idolatries of Rome was a major deal in the first century. Those who were baptized publicly as an expression of their faith in Christ in the first century, perhaps more than any other century, knew as the waters of baptism covered them that they would also incur a flood of persecution Harassment and scorn for that decision. They knew invariably that by the waters of baptism, they would be bombarded with an angry culture around them. Angry friends, families, co-workers and neighbors who hated their conversion to Jesus Christ. To be baptized publicly in first century Asia Minor was to sign away one's cultural dignity and respect. To be baptized publicly in the first century Asia Minor, you would have to be absolutely, positively certain that your journey of faith with Christ would ultimately bring you eternal vindication. For if it didn't, you were the greatest of all fools. No one would have been baptized in the first century without weighing the cost. Likewise, Peter says, you who have been baptized, who have weighed the cost, like Noah weighed the cost when he constructed an ark for 120 years, when he experienced mockery and ridicule and scorn in his generation, and yet faithfully built that ark, knowing full well that God would save him, would vindicate him, So also, you in Asia Minor, who are receiving the waters of baptism, you know that God will save you. He will vindicate you for this decision. That, friends, is what Peter is saying in verse 21. Baptism incurs for us greater glorification, greater vindication, greater favor in the eyes of God Almighty. He qualifies baptism here at the end of verse 21. He says it is not the removal of the filth of the flesh, friends. Baptism is not what what spiritually cleanses us. Baptism, the physical act of baptism, Peter says, is not what makes us morally pure. It doesn't remove sin, Peter says. He says it very clearly. So that Thus, how could people understand this to be saved unto eternal life, I don't know. He says it's not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but instead it's the answer or the pledge, the promise of a good conscience toward God. That word conscience there is moved all the way to the front of the Greek sentence there as a way of emphasizing that word conscience. Peter means to say here that when you are baptized, you are so doing that act of faith, if you will, that that faithful act, out of a pure heart, out of a clean conscience, out of a desire, out of, out of. Because you've been converted and you recognize that this is, in fact, my Lord and my God. I want to follow him in baptism. I am doing so out of a pure heart. Peter here is presupposing that they're already saved. Literally speaking, in Greek, it would be a good conscience pledge to God. Baptism is a good conscience pledge to God. Notice how Peter says the words to God or toward God. Baptism here, friends, as Peter understands it, is something that believers do to God, toward God, in front of God as an act of service and worship to God. It is a spiritual sacrifice. In baptism, we are publicly declaring to the Lord that He is our God. We are publicly declaring to Christ that He is our Savior. And in so doing, we incur God's favor and hope of a greater reward and vindication in the coming kingdom. Friends, baptism is important. I want to just emphasize that. I think... uh, I think that we, we lose its significance because we're, we're living in a day and age where to be baptized publicly, hey, it, it just doesn't incur ridicule and, and scorn like it did in the first century. At least here, it certainly does in other parts of the world. By and large, in our community, to be baptized publicly, uh, there's you know, I guess there's a, lot, there's a great aura of tolerance in our community today. you know? Oh, that's great. Wonderful. Congratulations, they might say to us. Very few people would probably ridicule or mock that that act of of worship. But let's remember baptism in the context of the first century. When they were baptized, big deal. Major deal. Life-transforming deal. It was no small act of faith. It was a huge leap into the arms of God Almighty, asking Him, Lord, please vindicate me because I know on this earth I may be persecuted and even killed for this commitment. I urge you to be baptized if you haven't already been. Follow in the pattern that has been set by Christians before you. We will have a baptism opportunity this summer at one of our beach nights, perhaps getting baptized in the ocean. I'd love for you, if you have not been baptized, I'd love for you to come and talk to me about that. And we can talk about how to publicly demonstrate your inward faith in Jesus Christ. The end of verse 21. Take a look. He says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this is really awkward. Uh, I can't say it any other way. This is awkward in Greek. In yellow is the complete thought. Okay? In yellow is the complete thought of Peter. In white in the middle there, or excuse me, in gray, I guess, from verses 19 to 21, is Peter's excursus, his rabbit trail, his, his uh, big semi-rabbit trail, that is. But Peter here is completing his thought. We're coming back now full circle to where, where he started with. He's saying Jesus Christ suffered for sin once for all. The just died for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God put to death in his earthly life, but raised up in the spiritual life. How? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in between that, he has that large rabbit trail, if you will. But that rabbit trail was not without purpose, friends. Because you see, hopefully clearly now, that that rabbit trail was meant to say that when you live in the spiritual life, if you will, when you live as the Spirit of God provides you strength, when you live as the Spirit of God provides you courage and determination and resolve, you are vindicated. As Christ suffered, so Noah suffered. As believers who are baptized suffered, so also Noah suffered and Christ suffered. We are all in this together, Peter says. And yet through that suffering, Vindication ahead. What is this vindication? Take a look in blue at the bottom. Verse 22 Who has gone, speaking of Jesus, he has gone to the right hand of God Almighty. Angels, authorities, and powers have been made subject to him. Friends, this is Christ's vindication. Peter emphasizes it as if to say, look what Jesus got. Look what Jesus got. So also, you continuing your course of faith will receive vindication, will receive glory and honor. Be Jesus' hands and feet in the kingdom to come. Earthly suffering ends in vindication, friends. Chapter 4, verse 1. Here we come to a final exhortation. We're going to move through these six verses rather quickly. It's a final exhortation to you and I as we've come through this difficult passage today. Final exhortation. Take a look at verses 1 through 6 now. Peter says this, Therefore, in light of this, friends, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he should no longer live the rest of his time in in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Peter says, Since Christ also suffered and was vindicated, you also arm yourselves with the same mind. That word, arm yourselves, those of you in the military will appreciate this term. It is a military term. It is to say, put on armor. Put on armor for a battle. This armor, oddly enough, is the mindset of Christ, which, as we've been learning, is to patiently endure unjust suffering. Now that's an oxymoron if you ask me. Peter says in military terms, put on armor. The armor that says you will patiently endure suffering whenever it comes your way. Friends, that's, a, that's an incredible statement. Put on the armor that is a passive armor, if you will. Put on the armor knowing full well you will receive fire. You will be in the war. And your role as a soldier in this war is to patiently... Take all that comes your way. It is not, Peter says, to go on the offensive. We are not arming ourselves so that we can go out and be on the offense. Rather, Peter says, put on the mind of Christ as your armament. That when you incur suffering, that when you incur pain, that when your life goes through trouble, persecution, Difficult times? You will patiently endure it like Jesus Christ, knowing God will vindicate you in the end. Put on the armor of Christ so that you can prepare to pay back evil with good. Peter says when we assume Christ's mindset, the mindset of sin fades away. When we concern ourselves with patiently enduring unjust suffering, the temptation to retaliate, to fight back, or to get revenge, that temptation ceases, Peter says. For he who has put on this mind has ceased from sin. When we consider the mind of Jesus Christ and follow in his steps, we stop thinking about our selfish desires and start considering how our life conduct might lead to the conversion of an unbeliever. Verse 3, For we have spent enough, enough, Peter says, of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, in regard to these, Peter says, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. The word strange in yellow. Actually, excuse me, before we get to that, Peter says, Hey, you've been there. You've been down that road. By the way, this is yet, yet again great evidence that Peter's writing to Gentile Christians because these were those who would have participated in these kinds of sins. Jews would have avoided these kinds of sins, by and large, even the ones that were not pious toward God. Peter's not writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to a Gentile audience. And these are the vices, <laughs> which in their pagan world were considered virtues. These are the vices that they were Once dealing with, once undergoing. Peter says, You've done enough of that. Too much, in fact. Notice the word strange. In regard to these, they, meaning those who you once participated with, they think it's strange. They're amazed. They're in wonderment, Peter says. They're astonished, which would probably be the best translation of that word. They're astonished that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. They cannot believe your life conversion. But rather than just sit and wonder, their astonishment turns to scorn. He says they're going to speak evil of you. And friends, we've seen this time and time again in First Peter. Verbal persecution is a serious theme in First Peter. You will see it time and time again. Ridicule, scorn, mockery, humiliation, speaking evil of you. The word there is actually they're blasphemers. And it can actually mean that they're blaspheming you, Peter says, or it could also mean that they're blaspheming God, or the Spirit of God within you, if you will. They are blasphemers, Peter says. They wonder why you don't conduct yourselves in the way you used to conduct yourselves, and so they blaspheme you as a result of it. But Peter says, Fear not, verse 5, Fear not, for they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Fear not, Peter says. Vindication is ahead. Those who mock you today, those who bring you suffering, I don't know who it is in your life. Maybe it's at work right now. You're dealing with somebody who's just, just on your back all the time. They're criticizing you or causing you pain and frustration at work. Maybe in your family. you got a problem with your spouse or a child. Whatever it is in your life that's causing you suffering and pain and, and trouble today. Persecution, perhaps. Peter says, hey, stay the course. You'll be vindicated. And those who do you ill, who do you wrong, it is not for you to get revenge in this life, Peter says, for they will give an account to God God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And because of this final judgment that awaits every man, woman, and child, Peter says, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. What does this mean? Yet again, like spirits in prison in chapter 3, verse 19, here in chapter 4, verse 6, Peter indicates that the gospel was preached to those who are dead. Now, he is not suggesting, as I've already said earlier, that that Jesus is preaching to those who have already died and are in the afterlife. Instead, Peter is simply noting that mankind, even those who have died physically, have received the preaching of the gospel of God. That is to say, they've received the truth of God that they might have opportunity to live and be made alive according to the Spirit of God. In particular, I think Peter has in mind here the Christians who had since died in Asia Minor. Because notice what he says. He says that though they may be judged in the flesh according to men, that is to say, though they might be evaluated in man's eyes, mocked and ridiculed for their life conduct in man's ways, judged by man's standards, Peter says that's not their end. No, those who are now dead and have received the message of truth will be judged and made alive by the very Spirit of God. Their temporal suffering, pain, persecution, will soon lead them to a life worthy of eternal reward and glory, vindication, in the life to come. Friends, what can we learn from this? What, where have we gone throughout this text? What, at the end of the day, should you and I walk away with? Let me just say this first and a little bit off topic, but it's something that's important. I would argue very clearly that, friends, the most difficult passages in the Bible can be interpreted and understood correctly when done in context. I believe firmly that we've done that today. We've stuck to the context. We've stuck to internal evidence in the book of 1 Peter to interpret the book of 1 Peter. We've not gone to whimsical translations and interpretations to identify what Peter is saying here. When we read it in context, friends, the Word of God, the truth comes out. I encourage you be careful to read your, your Bibles in context. Two, Jesus suffered on earth, but has been and will be, I should say, vindicated by God. Be assured that God will not overlook your sacrifice of faith. Three, baptism and other sacrifices that demonstrate our allegiance to Christ will result in a greater measure of glory in the coming kingdom. That's what Peter says very clearly. He says when you show allegiance, God honors that. And for the first century, boy, baptism was the the chief example of showing allegiance to Christ. For in a source of comfort. Friends, we will all give account to God. To those who have scorned and mocked us, we know that we can entrust them into the hands of God. And we don't need to take revenge now. But what about you? If you were to die today, and it sounds cliche, but let's say you died today. Would your life incur glory or shame in the kingdom? Those of you who have expressed faith in Christ, hey, you're going to be with the Lord. You're going to be with the Lord in the afterlife. You're going to receive eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ, period. That is what gets us into the presence of Almighty God. Faith in Jesus. But glory... Honor, responsibility, roles in the coming kingdom under King Jesus are given to those who can look at the Lord Jesus on the last day, look him in the eye and say, Lord, here was my sacrifice of faith. I lived by the Spirit of God within me, doing all that I could by your power to live a life worthy and honoring. To you. Friends, we certainly are not going to be perfect in this life, but the more you and I demonstrate our allegiance to Christ, the more you and I become more like Christ, patiently enduring unjust suffering, the greater you will be vindicated in the life hereafter. Vindication, friends, is ahead, and it is coming soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, it is difficult, Father. To uh, it is often difficult, Lord, to live the Christian life. But Father, this is a life in which we uh, are called to love others, in spite of the evil that they might do to us. It's a life, Lord, in which we're called to imitate, mimic the lifestyle of Your Son Jesus, who, for the joy set before Him, the cross, suffering on it and dying, that He might pave the way to reconcile man back to God. Lord, it is not easy to endure suffering when it is done unjustly. But Jesus did it. And You ask us to do it. Lord, You ask us not to take revenge now. Now is not the time for revenge, for retaliation. Now is the time, Lord, to live faithfully, to live as Your Son would have us live, to be gracious and loving and merciful. To repay evil with good. And in so doing, Father, we cling to the hope that we've seen in 1 Peter. That, Lord, you will vindicate us as you have vindicated your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that our lives would be worthy of glory and honor in the kingdom to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.